Gosh, uh, this, this day has just been so full, and there's been so much uh, getting ready for it, and uh, it's been a really good day. And we're going to continue looking at uh, the, the Word of God, because that is where we find truth and life. And so turn with me to Mark 14, where we're going to get very near the end of this beautiful gospel. Uh, my boys and I, uh, for years, loved to watch the Lord of the Rings movies, and uh, if you know that series, you probably know that the author of the book that those movies are based on is J.R.R. Tolkien, and there was a movie just recently made about his early years, uh, the early years of his life, and the movie is called Tolkien. And finally, last Sunday, uh, I found a couple of hours just to sit and to watch it. And I, quite frankly, I was really moved by it because you see young men at the high school and then college level trying to figure out how to use what God has given them to change the world. I mean, that's the way they talked. But there was one scene in the movie as I watched it, I I just thought, oh no, here it comes. And it's the scene where, well, let me give you the context. This is England. Tolkien is a student at Oxford. World War I has started. England has not yet entered the war. A number of students are standing out in the the quad or in the courtyard at uh, Oxford, and, and a young man comes running in and announces with a great deal of enthusiasm that England has joined the war. And then you see these young men throw up their hats and cheer and embrace in jubilation. I mean, they're really, really enthusiastic about joining in this effort. And the oh no for me was, we know this side of any war, the terrible price, the difficult price, the very dear price that uh, would be paid for the love of their country. And they did pay a very dear price. There was a lot of enthusiasm but a lot of naivete about what was to be involved, the price that was to be paid. When you look at the Gospels, one of the things that hits me over and over is that there's a lot of enthusiasm to follow Jesus Christ. I mean, people come up to Him all the time, but you see very quickly there's not a lot of understanding of the price that would have to be paid to follow Jesus. Uh, So, for instance, if we go back to to Luke chapter 9, uh, uh, this man comes running up to Jesus and says, I will follow you wherever you go. Uh, do you remember what Christ says to him? Foxes have holes, birds have nests, but the Son of God has nowhere to lay his head. In other words, if you're going to follow me, know that there will be a price to be paid. And then closer to what we're looking at today, we're getting ready to look at the Garden of Gethsemane just before that. At the Last Supper, Jesus has for his disciples. Peter says, if everybody falls away from you, Jesus, I never will. Lots of enthusiasm, but then as we know, within hours, he will deny Jesus three times because he was afraid of the price he would have to pay if he acknowledged that Jesus was his dear friend. There was a lot of enthusiasm, but not a lot of understanding about the price that would have to be paid to follow Jesus Christ. But here's where I'm going today. It's not where you might expect. I'm not going to talk to you 
really anymore about the price that you and I are to pay to follow Jesus Christ. Instead, what I want to do is to show you that it is nothing, I mean nothing, compared to the price that Jesus has paid for you and for me so that we could follow him, so that we could find hope, freedom, and purpose. Mark chapter 14, let's look beginning in verse 32. This is just after the Lord's last meal with his disciples, and it takes place in the garden of Gethsemane. And they went to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. And he took with him Peter and James and John and began to be greatly distressed and troubled. And he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch. And going a little farther, he fell on the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. And he came and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, Simon, are you asleep? Uh, Could you not watch one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. And again he went away and prayed, saying the same words. And again he came and found them sleeping. For their eyes were very heavy, and they did not know what to answer him. And he came the third time and said to them, Are you still sleeping and taking your rest? It is enough. The hour has come. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. Would you pray with me? Oh, Father, we need you. Help us to get a glimpse, at least, of what your Son did for us, the price he paid that we might be yours. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. When I was a student at Clemson, my grandfather, my father's father, died suddenly of a heart attack, and so I just dropped everything at school and and drove up to Salisbury, North Carolina, to be with my grandmother, and there I saw something in my grandmother I had never seen before. I mean, my grandmother was the rock of Gibraltar. I mean, she, was, she wasn't very tall. She was maybe, maybe five feet if she was standing on her tiptoes, but she was the rock of Gibraltar. She was always in control, always on her feet, always, always, always taking care of everybody else. But all of a sudden, I saw my grandmother on the couch for several days in a row. All her strength was gone. When we look at the gospel stories, it's really clear that up until this point, all the disciples have seen in Jesus is this very, very a strong person who is always in control, who is always taking care of everybody else. But, but now, uh, Christ's own inner circle, Peter, James, and John, uh, they see in this garden, they watch their Savior, this strong man, all of a sudden fall to the ground. And we're told in Luke that first he falls to his knees. And then according to Matthew, he falls on his face. And there... Christ, our Savior, over and over repeats the prayer, "Uh, Father, if there is any other way than for me to drink this cup, 
If there is any other way, please allow me to take that way. And he wasn't praying with a whisper. Hebrews 5 tells us that his prayers in the garden that night were offered with loud cries and and, and tears. So I want you to picture this. Our Savior was wailing. It would have made us uncomfortable how loud his cries were to his Father. And all this is just is taking place just a stone's throw from Peter and, and James and John. And so they could see as Jesus' body convulsed on the ground, they could see the tears falling from his face. They could see the sweat dripping under the ground as though it were blood. So, so what in the world is going on here? I mean, Jesus has been through all kinds of difficulties before. He's been tempted by Satan as he was all alone in the desert. He's had the religious leaders who were very, very powerful seek to trap him in all kinds of ways, and enemies seek to kill him, and yet all of a sudden we see something different in him. Nothing up until this point seems to jar him uh, until now. And here suddenly we read that he began to be greatly distressed. The Greek word that is translated greatly distressed actually means astonished. The Son of God is is astonished up till now, up until now. Christ has been totally unflappable, but all of a sudden, now Jesus sees something. He realizes something. He he experiences something that actually stuns him. The, The eternal Son of God is stunned, so much so that Jesus is troubled, we're told, which literally means that our Savior is overwhelmed with horror. My soul is very sorrowful, even to death. And what Christ is saying is that it is all I can do to bear up under the weight of what is to come. And so again, what is going on? I mean, why, as Jesus faces his imminent death, is he so overwhelmed? I mean, let's just think back a a moment for, if you look back through the last 2,000 years in the history of the the church, and I've had the wonderful, delightful privilege of being able to study this for a number of years, uh, you see a lot of men and women who were faithful followers of Jesus Christ uh, become martyrs because of that faith, be put to death because of their faith in Christ. And, and it's really clear, as a number of people have pointed out, that many of them uh, went to their death pretty calmly, not as Jesus is reacting here in this story. You know, one of my very favorite examples of martyrs facing death for Jesus Christ in such a glorious way is now called the 40 Martyrs of Sebaste, and it actually took place about 300 years after the death of Jesus Christ. It was really the last wave of Roman persecution of Christians because the tide was about to turn. Christians were becoming so prevalent that uh, the Roman persecution would die down after this, but it was, it was a part of the last wave of persecution. And what had happened is that 40 soldiers, Roman soldiers, had uh, become uh, followers of Jesus Christ, and they professed that faith openly, and, and so they were persecuted by the government. And what they did was take these 40 soldiers, strip them of their clothes, and march them out. This is the middle of winter. It is incredibly cold. They marched them out onto a frozen lake 
uh, where they are to stay there until they froze to death, which wouldn't take long. Now, the only thing they had to do to save their lives was to walk in off of the ice into this little bathhouse that was set up for them, and they are denied Jesus Christ. But instead of doing that for hours throughout the night, what you hear are these 40 soldiers singing, 40 good soldiers for Christ, 40 martyrs for Jesus Christ. And they sing that for hours until somewhere in the middle of the night, one of the soldiers gives up. And he walks off the lake into this bathhouse. And then in the distance, the jailer who's been watching all of this hears now the soldiers continuing to sing, 39 good soldiers for Christ. And then in a few moments, one of the, one of the most beautiful things I've ever heard about happens. The jailer who is, has not been a follower of Christ is so moved by the God that these men are worshiping and their faithfulness to him that, that he literally strips his own clothes off and runs out onto the lake where they now sing 40 good soldiers for Christ. That's a true story. These are not made-up stories. The, the point that I'm trying to make here is that you see them going to their death for Jesus Christ in a very, very calm way. And even in a, a joyous way, they're, they're, they're looking forward to seeing their Savior face to face. And, and so why is it, as one person asked, why is it that a number of people who are followers of Jesus Christ have died better than Jesus did? Now, better he has in quotation marks. What is it in the Garden of Gethsemane that, that shook Jesus to his core? Now, let's think about it. Now, and let me ask you, what, what do you think it was? I mean, could it have been the realization that he was about to be abandoned and betrayed by a number of people who had become very, very dear to him? I mean, you've got Peter, James, and John. This is his inner circle. He loved these men. He spent more time with them than the others. And yet, they don't even stay awake in the garden, no matter how many times Jesus asks them to, to remain awake with him. Judas, his friend, I mean, Christ loved Judas. You have to understand that. This was a friend. This is a man he ministered with for three years. And yet, Judas is getting ready to betray him in a terrible way with a kiss. False witnesses are about to slander him. Peter, his dear friend, is about to deny him three times, and soldiers are getting ready to do to Jesus what no one ever should have to go through. So, so was that what it was that shook Jesus to the core? Or could it have been the fact that he knew he was getting ready to go through the physically gruesome death that takes place on a cross? Well, the answer to both of those questions is no, not really. I mean, again, a number of people have been betrayed. A number of followers of Christ have been abandoned. A number of followers of Christ have died very horrible physical deaths. There's something else going on here that, that, that these 40 martyrs were not facing that any martyr has ever faced before. There's, there's something going on in the garden, something that Jesus sensed, something he felt uh, something he, he saw, and, and it horrified him. And, and so what was it? There's something more than the abandonment of friends and the 
betrayal of enemies going on here. There's something more than the excruciating physical pain he was about to endure on a cross. Here is what staggered the eternal Son of God for the very first time as he walked on this earth, the full meaning of what he is about to face hits him. For uh, the first time, he understands fully what his love for us will require of him, what it will cost him. He, he knew he was headed to a cross. He has told his disciples that on a number of occasions. But now he begins to taste that. He begins to experience what is about to come on that cross. And it goes so much further than mere physical torture and death. So, so what is it? What is this horrible thing? Well, it's at the very heart of Christ's prayer here. Remove this cup from me. This cup is what the Old Testament referred to as the cup of staggering. This cup is what caused our Savior to stagger in the garden uh, because it is this cup that Jesus is about to drink on the cross for our sake. And it's full of two things, our sin and God's holy wrath against our sin. As Jesus stared into the cup that he was to take as he lay prostrate on the ground in the garden. He saw evil of every kind that he was getting ready to take the weight of on himself. I mean, he saw the genocide that would come. He saw human trafficking. He saw the abuse of helpless people. And he saw people turning a blind eye to those in desperate need when they had the means to help. He saw hatred and immorality of every kind. And he saw your idols. He saw my idols. And he saw what we did when no one else was looking. And he saw what we would do if given half a chance. And he saw the guilt and the shame of all of that piled on him bit by bit on a lonely cross until the weight of it would, would finally crush the life out of him. But that wasn't the worst thing he saw in that cup. He saw what all that guilt, as he took it on himself, would do to his relationship with his father. As he pleads with his father for any other way to pay for the sins of the world, his father says, no, there is no other way. And so Jesus, as we know, submits to the will of his father. He gets up and he goes to a cross and he pays the awful price that love requires for us. And the horror of that price is expressed in Jesus' own words on the cross, my God, my God, why, why have you forsaken me? Uh, my God, my God, those are incredibly intimate words. It's a, it's a reflection of the kind of relationship Jesus has had with his Father. Our, uh, you know, Judy and I are in that wonderful stage of being grandparents now, and uh, uh, one of our little granddaughters, Abigail, calls Judy Juju, and uh, she calls me Mike Mike. And uh, sometimes, instead of calling me Mike Mike, uh, she calls me My Mike. I love that. I mean, every time she calls me My Mike, I think, 
thought, God, thank you that you would give me such a sweet relationship uh, with this dear little one. I mean, it's just so wonderful. I could take out thousands of pictures if you've got time after the worship service. <laughs> it's just, it's dear. But, but let me ask you this. What if, I mean, we were just with them a couple of weeks ago for our children to get out of town. And uh, so we stayed with our little granddaughter and her little brother. And um, she woke up in the middle of the night and she was afraid. What if, what if she woke up in the middle of the night and, and she really is a, afraid and we're in the next room and she calls out, my mic. And instead of running in there and calming her fears and staying with her until she's okay, I ignore her. I just turn my back on her. Well, when Jesus cries out in the garden or on the cross, my God, my God, there was nothing but silence from his heavenly Father. I mean, there wasn't even a glance his way. Instead, his father just turned his back on him because in that moment, Jesus became everything that God hated. When Jesus died, we're told from Paul that for our sake, God made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Or as the Living Bible so wonderfully puts it, for God took the sinless Christ and he poured our sins into him. Then in exchange, he poured God's goodness into us. And so it wasn't abandonment by his friends that staggered Christ as he stared into that cup in the garden. It was the abandonment of his own father. And so that's why he begs his father to give him some other way, any other way to pay for the sins of the world. But as he said, yet not what I will, but what you will. If there is no other way, I will drink every last drop of this cup. Now, why would he do that? I love the way a wonderful pastor has put this. He said, because as horrible as the cup is, Jesus knows that his immediate desire to be spared must bow before his ultimate desire to spare us. As I said earlier, it's not my goal today to talk to you about the price you will pay to be a follower of Christ, the price I will pay. My goal has been to give us just a, a glimpse into what was going on in the garden and what Jesus did. I, I want us to see a, a bit, at least, of the price that was paid by our Savior out of His love for us. And so let me just say to you, if, if paying a price, if suffering for Christ is something that you struggle with, if it's difficult for you to be willing to live in a way that is costly for our Savior. I, I get it. I, I understand it's hard for me at times to, uh, to do that. But what I want to remember and what I want you to remember is this. Remember what it cost Jesus. Re remember uh, that he did this out of love for you. He went to a cross, uh, not for his sake, his glory, of course, but for our sake. 
So that we could know him, so that we could live with him, so that we could truly find hope and freedom and and, and purpose and, and leave behind the things of the past that we're not proud of, the things that have weighed us down, the things that have brought us guilt and shame and, and quite frankly, destruction. And let me say to those of you who have really never known that freedom, who have never, ever embraced Christ, let me just ask you to do something in your own. I love what, uh, uh, what was said earlier uh, about, uh, you know, as we kind of think with our, Ryan had to use it, our sanctified imagination. I love that. Use your sanctified imagination for a moment. And if you've never found that freedom in Christ, then look to the cross. Look to the Savior on, on the cross. And, and, and don't do what we normally do. And that is kind of when we think about that seriously, look down in shame. But instead, look up to the one who is the raiser of our heads and, and look into the eyes of the one who says to you, I did this for you. I was willing to pay a price that no one ever has paid and no one ever could pay but me. But I did that because I love you. And I want you to be free from all of those things that have hurt you. There is no love like the love that we see on the cross. May God help us today to know that, to feel that, and to live out of that. Would you pray with me? Oh, Father, we do... um, we do not understand, of course. There is so much beyond us that we can't even take in. But there's just no love like we saw on the cross. And so, Lord, help us this day to have a sense of that. Bring it to us, not just to our minds, but also to our hearts, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.